Well, good evening. It is great to be here. Me and my wife, we actually just recently moved to Oklahoma. Um, well, she she's only been here for about a few days, uh, and I moved last Friday. So coming up on uh, two weeks of being here. So we're excited to be here, and we're excited to get to work and to get to know the church here. I don't know if you could ever recall or bring to mind unlikely companionships. Uh, it's kind of an interesting subject when we talk about unlikely companionships. You guys had Trey Evans out here last week. Um, Trey and I had never met before until we went to school at Bear Valley together, and then we became roommates. We lived in the same apartment. But if you were to take our backgrounds, you couldn't get two more polar opposite backgrounds. Um, I grew up in a sur- suburb of Colorado. Uh, my parents were all the time, all, the, all around, and encouraging us to go to church, encouraging us to be active in the church. Um, Trey Evans was not in the church at the time growing up. In fact, he has a pretty interesting background. Um, He was actually converted at North MacArthur through their gym uh, ministry. Um, Kind of an interesting thing that they have there. But he was playing basketball, and they had an agreement that if you played basketball on Wednesday nights or on Sunday nights, that you had to come to a devotional. And uh, he kept coming back to those devotionals. He was enamored by the Sermon on the Mount, and he eventually converted to Christ and converted into the church through that ministry. There are a number of different companionships or friendships that we have in this world that would have been otherwise unlikely had we not had the common denominator of Christ in our presence. Um, I have my phone set up to where whenever I get news articles, they're always kind of quirky and a little bit more lighthearted news articles. I try to stay away from the negative uh, news as much as I can, um, unless it's just world pressing. Uh, That usually helps me to have a little bit more of a peaceful life. Um, Ignorance is bliss. Uh, and I'm learning that as I get a little bit more uh, advanced into maturity. But um, one of the news articles that I saw July 3rd was regarding an armed robber who apologized to the victim. And then the two became friends during the robbery and then decided to reconvene after the robbery. Um, there was a man who was walking down Manhattan Beach in California 1130 at night on a Sunday night. Probably not the wisest thing to do in Manhattan Beach, California. And he was met by a man who was standing behind him who had a gun to the back of his rib cage. And he started following him through uh, the robbery process, asked for his wallet. The man said he only had his phone on him. And so they decided that they would go to an ATM where the man would withdraw as much money as he could from the ATM and then go from there. Well, the robber... Got this man into his car, kind of like a kidnapping, except for there was no duct tape and uh, rope. Uh, He just had him sit in the back seat, drove him to an ATM. The man got out, and they started talking. As this whole thing is taking place, he pulled out the money, and the robber was very apologetic, said he had bills to pay. He didn't know any way out, and so he was using uh, pretty hostile means to do this. And then the man who was robbing uh, the the victim... um, They started talking, and the victim said, well, here's my Instagram, because the robber had taken away his phone, and he said, I'd like to regroup and maybe get some coffee once this whole thing is over with. And they did. Um, So unlikely companionships. They're all over the world. But what's interesting is the topic that we have tonight is building bridges with the unchurched. And John Arvin was kind of telling me a little bit about the series and how we're looking at Jesus. And I love the topic. I love looking at Jesus and how he was able and I would argue he was the master at building unlikely companionships. If you look at the 12 apostles, you have so much diversity between those 12 apostles and how they became friends, companions, brothers in Christ, apostles for the gospel. 
And it's really remarkable because otherwise, without Christ, they would have remained enemies. Um, But when we look at this idea of building bridges with the unchurched, my mind immediately went to the book that I used to teach at Bear Valley, and that is the Gospel of Luke. And within the first few chapters of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus starts his ministry after his baptism and after uh, his time in the wilderness of 40 days, Jesus starts this ministry and he starts building these relationships and building bridges with what would be seen at the time as the unchurched. Those who were outcasts, those who were forgotten by the religious communities of Judaism and even uh, Gentile religions. These were people who lived on the outskirts of life. And so as we start to look at this topic, one of the things that we must understand and one thing that is so fundamental in our understanding of the unchurched, and we'll be kind of using that as both a noun and an adjective, but as we look at the unchurched, those who are outside the church are afflicted. And maybe that's not the most positive or optimistic view of those who are living outside of the borders of the church, but they're afflicted. And you might argue, well, we're afflicted by being in the church as well. I mean, not because of the church. Hopefully, it's not because of the church that we're afflicted. But we have a means, an answer to deal with our afflictions. Whereas those who are outside of the church, they simply just have these afflictions that they deal with. This life is all that they have. Or maybe they have a false doctrine in their life that they don't know how to wrestle with or or grapple with. And yet, we have answers to our afflictions. And one of the most fundamental things that Jesus pointed out in his ministry was how to address those with afflictions. If you notice, and what we're going to notice tonight is about six stories that I want to share with you and how Jesus bridged that gap between what would be eventually his church, but really the core of spirituality and Christianity, the Christ, and how he made that gap to those who were considered to be outsiders, those who were forgotten by all other communities. And simply stating, Jesus renews the lives of the afflicted. The lives of those who were, who were in despair, those who were without hope, those who had nothing going for them in the future. Jesus was able to see the afflictions and the worries and the doubts and everything that was going on in these lives. And he was able to renew a sense of life into their entire persona. And it's really remarkable, and hopefully I won't stand in the way between us and the text, but we're going to be looking at, really, starting in Luke chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to start in Luke chapter 5, and we'll make our way through uh, Luke chapter 7. But I want to share with you about six stories that show us how Jesus was able to bridge the gap. And what's cool about each of these individual stories or accounts, as we were to have them in Scripture, is it reaches a different category of person Every single time that Jesus reaches out to these people. And what we'll notice is that since there are those who are outside the borders of the church or outside the borders of true spirituality, that is Christianity, they are dealing with these afflictions and Jesus is going to cater to each affliction and renew a unique aspect of their life in order for them to be totally revitalized, to be refreshed in who they are as a person. And as we go through these uh, six different accounts, what I want you to know is that we have the ability, we have the means to offer the same remedy that Jesus did to all of these individuals. 
And as we go through these, we're going to be looking at six basically different categories of afflictions that people face. And I guarantee you that every single individual in this auditorium knows at least one person who could be categorized as the unchurched, who could be categorized as outside of living a Christian or spiritual life. And the encouragement for us tonight is that Jesus invites us to do uh, the very remedy that he offers these people. The first story that I want us to hone in on is Luke chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. And what we see here is a man who is accidentally afflicted. And kind of reading into it a little bit, what we see in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 is, And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he directed him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to desolate regions and pray. You know what's interesting about leprosy is it was a highly contagious disease. In fact, lepers of the time in the first century and the centuries surrounding the first century without modern medicine like we do today, they would often have to cover their mouth and proclaim to everybody, unclean, unclean. It's how they would go through cities if... They were even able to get through the city walls. Typically what they would have is kind of how we have today, or in history rather, is leprosy colonies. As they would outcast these individuals to these separate colonies to try and keep the sickness and disease quarantined. To keep them away from the rest of society. A leper was the epitome of an outcast in the first century. And this man comes to Jesus. He falls on his face. The man recognizes his affliction. Jesus recognizes his affliction. Luke, the doctor, is saying he was covered in leprosy. Very specific language for a doctor to prescribe the symptoms of this man. He was covered. It's not like he just had a little ounce of leprosy on him. It was all over him. And notice what Jesus did. He saw him. He stretched out his hand. And he touched him. When was the last time this man has ever been touched by another human being? When was the last time that this man had any sort of comfort, any sort of hope? Uh, Leprosy would often claim the lives of its victims. Again, without modern medicine and, and typically being an outcast, leprosy would eventually take over the entire body and kill the victim. How did this man get the leprosy? We're not entirely certain. Was it from a younger age? Was it from uh, intentionally going to an area that was covered with lepers? We don't know. But what we do know is there are times in this life where we gain a sickness just by our proximity of by being around other people. Unintentionally. That there are those who are afflicted in this life that are afflicted not because of necessarily their decisions, not because of a sin that they had committed, but rather just by being in close distance with someone else. There are those who are accidentally afflicted, whether that means that you're having to take care of someone else because of their poor decisions or that you yourself are afflicted because of someone else's decisions. There are those in this life who have lost all hope, who have lost all comfort, who have uh, seldom had anyone come over to give them personal, intimate comfort. 
And yet this leper recognizes Jesus. And if you look at verse 12, he calls out to Jesus, not as just rabbi or, or messiah, but he calls out to him, Lord, kurios. It's the word that a servant would take to recognize his master. And he's saying, Lord, you are willing, you are able to make me clean. But notice what Jesus tells him after he makes him clean, after he cleanses him. Verse 14, a little bit interesting, and some would call this the messianic secret. You see a lot develop in Mark's gospel as Jesus would instruct numerous people to not go and tell about what would happen. And inevitably, the people would go and uh, tell everyone about what happened. But Jesus tells him to go and show yourself to the priest, to make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded. That's Leviticus uh, chapter 14. But he says, as a testimony to them. Now, people probably recognize this man as the leper who was covered in leprosy, especially within this city. We think city like Oklahoma City or Denver, but much smaller communities back then. And Jesus says, go and talk to the priest, make an offering, but show yourself as a testimony to the priest. Show yourself as a witness as to what has just taken place here. Show yourself that I am here, Jesus says. And as the man would go and and tell the priest what we read of in verse 15, news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. Jesus didn't just cleanse the leper. Rather, Jesus renewed the purpose of a leper. He gave him purpose. And his purpose was to be a living testimony of Christ and his cleansing power. The question comes down to, are we able to look at the unchurched and redirect their purpose? Um, I look at myself, and I grew up in the church. I'm sure many of you did, and if you didn't, then maybe you can relate to a little bit of my story. But I grew up in the church, and we were very adamant about our attendance in church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we had... Uh, blizzards in Colorado. My dad was very serious about getting the truck and getting it in four-wheel drive. And um, I don't know if there was ever a Sunday that we missed uh, outside of the congregation canceling services. I mean, we were adamant about that. And we were there all the time. We were active and engaged in almost everything that we had. And then high school came and went. All my friends moved away to different colleges and Christian universities. And I stuck back because I was going to be a welder in the oil and natural gas industry. And I was for a little bit. But In my sticking back and in my independence as a 17-year-old at the time, I fell away. I stopped going to church. I had to discover my own faith, and when push came to shove, my own faith was very weak at the time. I had treated Bible class as if it were another class in high school, and I kind of blew off all the assignments and didn't really pay much attention. And so my, my relationship with God was not personal at that time. And it wasn't personal until I realized the darkness that life can uh, inevitably bring upon you and totally surround you in when you abandon God. And it's no wonder that Jesus tells us that he is the light, uh, that he is also the life. Well, if you take light and life away, then you're left with darkness and death. And that's what I was seeing in my life. And it wasn't until I came back to Jesus and started falling more in love with his teaching and and understanding what he was communicating through the scriptures and through the gospels that I realized that there is a purpose much bigger than this life. You think about the American dream. 
Try to have as much money as possible. Try to have as lucrative of a job as you can. And that's all vanity, according to Solomon. Solomon reaches from a standpoint of being the richest man in the world. He says, it's all vanity. It's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. But the true worth in this life, the true value is to fear God and to keep his commandments. There's a new purpose given to this leper. And this leper wasn't even trying to pursue the American dream. This leper was trying to simply live. Trying to have a normal life, being an outcast from everyone else, not having friends, not having family close by, not having been touched. And yet Jesus says, go and show yourself as a testimony to the priest. There's a whole new purpose given. And I think that if we are going to bridge the gap between here and the unchurched, that we have to show them that there is purpose in this life that we have. We don't go to church only to check a, a check mark on Sunday morning. We don't go to church only to reap the benefits of like baby showers or wedding showers, as great as those are. We go to church because we love God. We go to church because we appreciate and understand his family. And the things that we love and appreciate become uh, the beneficiaries of our life. That when we are in a family, we get friends and social activities and different things. Those are all byproducts. But the purpose is to love God and to love his church. And it's the only eternal thing that we have in this life. What else is there in this life that we will see in the next one? Friends, it's just the church. This is the only eternal thing that we have here. We are in a purpose that is so much bigger than our own individual lives. We are in a purpose that is eternally big. If we keep on reading in the text, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, we read of an individual who is naturally afflicted. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, And it happened that one day he was teaching. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. How cool is that? That you have all these individuals, religious elites from all these different regions, including the capital, the Mecca, Jerusalem. They're all there. But guess what else is there? The power of the Lord was present. Verse 18, Behold, some men were carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and set him down before him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles uh, with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God Alone And Jesus, knowing their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and picking up your stretcher, go home. We don't know the entire background of this individual's story, but we know that he was paralyzed. Again, something that could happen from birth or something that could happen by accident, but I I know it's not typically an intentional thing for people to get paralyzed. I know people don't just go out into the city and say, you know, today I just want to get paralyzed. It's an accident. Whether it was a child or whether it was a few years ago or whether it was from birth, this man was accidentally afflicted. There are people in this life who are living in affliction that have been caused by accident or natural happenstance. 
There are people in this life who are living in affliction that take place naturally. And sometimes it begs the question of Epicurus back in the ancient world of if God is all powerful and all loving, then why is there so much disaster and suffering in this world? But the better question is that because God is all loving and all powerful, that there is joy and happiness to be found in this world. There is blessing. Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the world's probably foremost atheists who speaks adamantly that there is no God and that the cosmos is just happenstance and we're here because of chance, would speak out and say, when I look at the universe, I see how corrupt and everything is violent against everyone else. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson also forgets that in a world that is filled with violence and chaos from natural disasters, mind you, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, planets crashing into each other, stars going supernova. It is a violent cosmos. That would be the natural state. But the supernatural state is why do we have things like blessing? How are we able to appreciate things in this life? Why do we have a a natural instinct to appreciate beauty? Why do we know about morals, whether they are good or bad? That's objective morality. We have things in this life that promote a good and great God who loves us and who appreciates us and who wants to serve us. And that's pretty exciting to me. The fact that God not only created this world and we messed it up because of our sin and that's where the decay comes from, but the fact that God still remained present in such a world to benefit you and I. Read through sometime Matthew chapter 6 and tell me that God does not care for us. Read through Romans chapter 8 sometime and tell me that God does not care for us. God cares for us despite the natural afflictions that we might have. We might have natural afflictions such as disease or sickness or bad genes. Both of my parents have horrible vision. And so I am a product that I wear very high prescription contact lenses. If I don't have contacts, I can't see a thing. But I don't blame God for it. It's natural. It's what happens in this world of decay and entropy. But yet, in this world of decay and entropy and sickness and disease and accidents like paralysis and everything else that goes on, God is still there. Jesus is still there. And he's not only there, but he's there to bridge the gap between that belief of God can't be all good and why don't you follow me and follow into uh, who I am. What's interesting is when Jesus tells this man that he is no longer uh, paralyzed and once he forgives his sins, notice what he says in verse 24. Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Has this man ever got up, picked up his stretcher, and gone home? Has this man ever had the ability outside of his paralysis to walk and to run, and to enjoy the uh, blessing that we take for granted every day. Rather, what Jesus did is he renewed this man's direction. By saying, get up and go home. This man now has a newfound ability, or perhaps at the very least, a newfound appreciation for the ability to walk. Jesus provided a direction for this man that he otherwise didn't have. He had to have four friends drop him down through a roof. This man had no direction except for to try his way to get to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus offers us. He gives us a direction. 
He doesn't say, just go and live your life. As much as the world would like to push that ideology onto us, there is so much more than just living. There's a direction. We are striving towards something. We are longing for something greater than this world, but we have an avenue to appreciate in that. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are not to work hardly as for man, but to work for the Lord. Even in our everyday lives, I'm not just going to be a college minister just because it's a paying job. Um, I'm not going to be a welder just because it's a paying job. I'm not going to go be a school teacher just because it's a paying job. I'm going to do it because those are the skills and talents that God has given me. And therefore, I'm going to represent God the best that I can in those talents. And it's interesting how it can take something as futile as chasing money and develop it into as purposeful as serving God. Total different ends of the spectrum. And Jesus gives us direction in our life. Jesus gives us the ability to go somewhere in our life. Without him, there's no direction. The third individual that I want us to look at is the following verses in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. We have Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, a tax collector. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? It's interesting, in trying to bridge the gap with the unchurched, the Pharisees and scribes hate the fact that someone's trying to bridge that gap. They take notice that they're not one of us, they're a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's one who wrongfully takes money from us. He's got a horrible past and horrible reputation being owned by the Roman government, even though probably a Jew with a name like Levi. Um, He was kind of a a dual blood, if you will, of sorts. Um, Someone who was a mutt, who was kind of working two different worlds of Judaism and also Roman. A traitor to the Jews, an asset for the Romans. How could you, Jesus, if you claim to be the Messiah, the Lord, God in the flesh, how could you sit and eat with sinners? And every once in a while in the text, um, I've, I've kind of highlighted these as Jesus' thesis, where Jesus says something in such a brief statement, and it's just a mic drop moment. Look what he says in verse 31. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And what blows my mind about this is the Pharisees and the scribes were the most sick, but they didn't think so. They thought they were spiritually uh, nourished. They thought they were spiritually elite, that they were warriors of spirituality. Paul would go on and talk about his credentials in Philippians chapter 3, saying that he was a zealous Jew. That he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That was the mentality of Pharisees at the time. That I'm as as tall as it gets to be a Jewish leader. And yet Jesus says, it's the sick who need my help. And if you don't come to me for help, if you don't accept my help, then you have self-titled your own individual life as well. And Jesus says, I'm going to reach out to those who recognize their affliction. 
Matthew or Levi was socially afflicted. Can you think of individuals or even think of a past time in your life where you were afflicted because of social status? Where you were an outcast, maybe in a different country or a different place or a different town, where because of your social status, either rich or poor, you were somewhat of an outcast or a minority? Um, I've met and talked with both ends of the spectrum. Um, I know a man back home who is wealthier than I could even imagine, um, who has a bank account with probably more numbers in it than I could count. And yet he's talked to me about the affliction of being rich. And I thought, well, I wouldn't mind having that problem. (laughs) But the affliction of being rich, about not letting money rule your life. Because at some level, you sometimes become a servant to money. That's exactly what Paul would talk about in Romans chapter 6, or what Jesus would talk about in Matthew chapter 5. That you can only serve one master. And so you've got to decide whose master you are, or whose master will be yours. There are times in this life that we look at the unchurched, and they may be socially afflicted, and Jesus' solution was a new pursuit. Notice what Jesus told Matthew in Luke chapter 5. Two words, follow me. Do you think that changed the itinerary, the momentum of Matthew's life? I mean, we look at Matthew, and if we read through the Gospel of Matthew, I'd say Matthew is probably a pretty changed man. How he converted over to Christianity, converted over to being a disciple of Jesus, and followed him. When we follow Jesus, it doesn't matter about our social affliction, because Jesus gives us a new branding, a new identity, and he gives us a new pursuit. Paul would talk about, after his long list, and prestigious list, might I add, in Philippians 3. He says, for my pursuit is to be with God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 and following, he talks about how I am not trying to pursue this world anymore, but yet I pursue to make it my own. Speaking of the resurrection, because Jesus has made me his own. And I pursue the unfathomable knowledge and riches and power of his resurrection. So much so that Paul forgets about his identity as a Roman citizen. And he says, for I am a citizen of heaven, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. That Paul recognizes that there is a new awakening, a new pursuit for him. And it's so much greater than whatever pursuit he was before. For the unchurched, what we have to offer them is a new pursuit in this life. A new, uh, a new direction that they can then follow. So we keep on reading. In Luke chapter 7, of course, this follows uh, what we consider to be the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. And Luke chapter 7 is my favorite chapter in Luke's gospel. There's just so much that goes on and time won't allow us to really look at everything in detail. But there are those who are personally afflicted. When you look at the centurion's faith, was it the centurion that was necessarily afflicted? But it was his servant who he held in such high regard. And because of his servant's sickness, he was carrying the load of grief or despair uh, that was had on him. If we look at Luke chapter 7 verse 1, when he had completed all his words and the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. So pretty sick. Now when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave 
And when they came to Jesus, they were earnestly pleading with him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation. And it was he who built our synagogue. And Jesus was going on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not good enough for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned to the crowd that was following him, and he said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Sometimes the worst pain that we experience in this life is not our direct pain. But maybe it's watching the pain of those who are closest to us. I don't know if you've ever been in a position to watch a family member or a spouse go through a deal of pain. But I would argue it hurts more than facing that pain myself. Because I know I can't do anything about it. I know I'm not in control of that situation. I know that I can't bear that pain for them. It's them that has to go through it. And that's difficult. It's a personal pain that is unsurmountable in terms of describing it. And the centurion, it was so much more than just a slave. It was someone who he loved. It was someone who was close to him. And to some level, he's experiencing a pain that I would not want to go through myself. In fact, I would rather go through the the pain of being sick myself than to be the secondary uh, witness of pain. And yet what Jesus does is he renews faith in this individual. It very well could have been the last cry for help for the centurion to go to Jesus and to ask for help. And Jesus answers, he witnesses one characteristic about the centurion. Not his authority, not his prestige, not the fact that he has a synagogue in his midst, but his faith. And because of his faith, he commends him for that faith and pushes him in a good direction. Sometimes the unchurched have a faith. They're not all just rampant atheists out there who deny God, though there are some out there who are, who are like that. But sometimes they have faith. And one of the worst things we could ever do is discount someone's faith. Because you attack the very core of an identity when you attack faith. Your faith sits at the nucleus of who you are. In fact, it drives every single action of what you do. And so to discount or to belittle or to rail against someone else's faith, it's not our place. And rather than Jesus going and attacking this man's faith, he commends his faith and he gives him a renewed faith, something more to believe in, a reassured faith that he can believe in the Christ. So we keep on moving as we look at Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. It happened that soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. We need to pause right there. Because this woman is in a very desperate situation now. 
She's a widow. And they didn't have life insurance back in the first century. In fact, the only life insurance that they had was hopefully they've got kids to take care of the widow. And her only son has just died. So now this woman is caught between a rock and a hard place. She wants to mourn and grieve her son, but at the same time, her mind has to deal with the logistics of how am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to have a place to stay, a place to live? Who's going to help me? Because now my husband is dead and now my son's dead. While all trying to grieve and deal with a broken heart of tragedy of losing a child. As if losing a child wasn't hard enough. Losing everything else that you have in your life, socially, economically, relationally. This woman was devastated at this time. Devastated to the point where she caught the attention of Jesus without even saying anything. Keep reading. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, do not cry. He came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Can you imagine the flood of emotions, of relief, of joy, of happiness, of positivity? I mean, just every single positive emotion that you could imagine is now just bombarding this woman as Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, takes this son and gives him back to the mother. There are those in our life who are desperately afflicted and Jesus offers a renewed hope. He offers something that's so much greater than anything that we could ever try to do to help ourselves. And lastly, we see that there are those who are sinfully afflicted. There are those who are outside the church who are not churchgoers, who are unchurched, And they are because, or they are in that state because of their life of sin. And maybe this is the most predominant category, and this is probably the most fitting account, I would say, to that category of those who are living in sin. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says, Now one of the Pharisees was asking him to eat with him, and he entered into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. We don't know exactly what sin, just that she was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head, now kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who, uh, who this woman is and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee titled this woman as a sinner, not Jesus, but the Pharisee. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Jesus tells the story. A moneylander had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So 10 times the amount. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of him or which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who graciously forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. To the unchurched, we look at at them as sinners. We see them as you're doing something wrong in your life. We see them as you need to get right with God or you need to come to Jesus. And, And maybe some of those things are right. 
not calling them sinners, but telling them that they need to come back to God. But maybe we ought to see the potential that they have of being overwhelmed with gratitude, the fact that they can come to God and be graciously uh, forgiven of their debts. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table began to say to themselves, who is this man that he even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is a renewed peace for those who are sinfully afflicted. I went to school with a number of individuals that Pharisees would have called sinners. I went to school with a number of people who were alcoholics, who not only did drugs, but dealt drugs. I went to school with some guys who were coming out of prison just about two years prior to their uh, attendance at school. I went to school with guys um, who were horribly uh, marred with sin, who had SWAT on their front yard, pulling them out of their house, putting them in handcuffs. And yet I was going to a preaching school 